What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode 81 of the Noise Podcast, brought to you by Noise Account UK and sponsored by Stereo Brain Records. I am your host, slash your boy, Chris Pugh, and I'm joined, as ever, by Mr. Cynical himself, Sam Lewis, but also Mr. No Voice himself, Sam Lewis. Uh, are you okay, dude? I'm getting there, mate. I'm getting there. I'm a bit better than I was uh, yesterday when the, you just couldn't couldn't hear me. Um, but yeah, man, pulling through. What would what what else would we what else would we not do for the the metal community, man? I'm giving giving my giving my throat here. I'm really expecting like a Victoria Cross or something by the end of this podcast. So because of your issues at the moment with your voice, um, and I, first of all, thank you for still putting yourself through this and doing the podcast with me. Um, I'm going to do probably most of the heavy lifting in terms of speaking for the podcast, which would either be which might be the worst news for our listeners that could possibly hear. Um, obviously, I'll still come to you occasionally, but I don't want you to. Like, I'm worried that within half an hour, it'll just be you speaking and we can barely hear. There's just nothing but rasps coming out of your mouth. Honestly, I don't know if the worst thing would be me losing my voice halfway through, or the worst thing is us doing it that way. And then someone someone comes to us like, I didn't really notice a difference. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether that'd be a slight on me or you. Chris Chris said loads of stuff and you just grunted cynically at various points. Well, I don't know. But you will at all. I don't know. Is that, is that, is that probably what's going on? Amazing. Oh, um, dude, thank you for putting yourself through this, man, because it can't be yeah, easy. Man. So I do, I do appreciate it. Um, we are Fortnightly Rock and Metal Podcast, sponsored by Stereo Brown Records. Uh, we're available on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, basically wherever you get your podcast, we will be there. The best way to support us is by subscribing, liking, or following, depending on whichever service you are watching or listening to us on. Follow us on Twitter at Noise Podcast. Me and Sam both were on that account and recently passed the very classic 666 mark of followers. Uh, that was a cool moment, and thank you to Metal Twitter for that. Uh, on this week's show, really not a lot going on in terms of news. There's only one piece of news that i really don't want to talk about that much but i guess we can't ignore it because it really is in the uh, metal zeitgeist quite quite strongly at the moment more importantly and more excitingly than that we are going to talk about dying wishes new record fragments of a bit of memory and wage wars manic as well as that chris meets returns and that is with jim hodge of the black and grindcore band mastiff uh, their new record leaving the ashes of the earth is horrible horrible but also a banger i spoke to him about that and what it's like living in hall uh, kind of ethics behind writing the band loads of cool stuff as uh, so make sure you stick around at the end of the episode for that we're going to get, get into the news Sam I, mean, I, did, I didn't really want to speak about it I, I didn't want to give it the credit of talking about it uh, I'm assuming you've seen the MGK Corey Taylor Matt Heafy kind of beef swirling through the metal Twitter sphere I've seen the headlines yes yeah, so um, I'll try and condense it into a nutshell because I do think it's all a bit silly. Around February time, I believe, Corey Tyler was on a podcast of which the name I have forgotten. He mentioned that um, he didn't like the way that rock was going and that he didn't like that the, there was an artist that failed in one genre and jumped over to rock. Obviously, that artist we could all infer was Machine Gun Kelly, who used to be a rapper, and now he is something, I want to say, an attempting pop-punk musician. Uh, Machine Gun Kelly played at Riot Fest, of which I believe Slipknot were also playing. That's the festival in Chicago. Machine Gun Kelly made a slight at Slipknot. He said, I'm glad I'm not a 50-year-old wearing weird effing masks. Got quite a reaction from the crowd. The video went viral on Twitter. Corey Taylor responded saying that 
showing some kind of email chain where he had been asked to do a, a piece on Machine Gun Kelly's album to which Corey in this email had listened to the song and been like, this isn't going to be for me. I'm not going to add my voice to this. I wish him all the best. Machine Gun Kelly had responded to that saying that, that Corey Taylor doesn't like him because he sent him the part and the part sucked and Machine Gun Kelly didn't want to use it. Then recently this weekend, Machine Gun Kelly played at a festival where uh, Slipknot either were also playing. See, I'm kind of loose on the information because I, I haven't really looked into it because I find it all a bit silly and embarrassing. But regardless, Machine Gun Kelly played a show this weekend. Either either Slipknot were also playing or it was a largely metal bill that featured Machine Gun Kelly. Regardless, there are videos of booze, middle fingers to him. And then there's also a clip of Machine Gun Kelly throwing a punch at a fan that tried to climb over the barrier. All a bit silly. Matt Heafy weighed in on it and took the mick out of Machine Gun Kelly, calling him squirt, gun smelly or something along those lines, <laughs> which did make me laugh. But again, I just thought this is just a bit silly now. I guess there isn't really a lot of one. There's not really much we can back and forth about here. It's all a bit, it's a bit handbags, isn't it, Sam? Yeah, I don't think anyone wins. Yeah, well, everyone never loses. The first like dig that Machine Gun Kelly threw at Slipknot saying they're 50 year olds in weird effing masks. He knew that was going to get a reaction. Of course he was. He knew that there would at least be 20 people in the in the crowd, at least filming at that one point that would catch this, that would then find that interesting to post. And at first I thought this is just Machine Gun Kelly doing a way of a great way of self-promotion because that that video does the rounds on Twitter. Thousands of people are talking about it. And maybe out of those thousands, a hundred people decide to listen to MGK's album out of that. And maybe a hundred people like it and then tell their, like, and then a hundred more people find out about it, etc. And I thought this is basically just a normal way of self-promotion and that they say there's no such thing as bad press. But as this has started to move forward, and now he's receiving, I don't know the amount of booze, but there's definitely a video where he's being booed. He's receiving booze at festival shows. He's swinging punches at fans climbing over the barrier. Other artists from the metal sphere are weighing in. This is really, I just think that this is, apart from if you're a, like a child looking at this and it seems cool that this guy is winding up the metal sphere. I think this is all really looking bad, mostly for MGK. And he looks bad enough with that album that he released in 2019. But this is, I think, quite negative press, if such a thing exists. I think he's, it's embarrassing all round, isn't it? Um, I also don't really think that there's any point in Corey Taylor or Matt Heafy actually getting involved themselves. I need to justify this sort of thing with a response. This is a person who is trying quite desperately to break in to a community has found that the community hasn't particularly welcomed him over the last 24 months because his material is garbage and he's trying to just insult it. Now, um, if Corey Tyler lent his voice and he got rejected or he wanted to be involved or whatever, he got sent in and said, no, who cares? Um, it's all it's all incredibly petty. And MGK insulting Slipknot for wearing masks it's incredibly ironic for somebody that posts lots of videos and images of themselves wearing clothes and portraying them sort of a way that's deliberately designed for the same kind of publicity that Slipknot once acquired in a 
rather more intimidating fashion in sort of the late 90s. Um, Rolling Stone nailed it. MGK a man who dyed his tongue black in sort of slipknot for wearing masks. Yeah. Was their yeah. headline I saw the other day. And that kind of yeah. sums it up really. Everyone's a everyone's a hypocrite. Um, but also to a lesser extent, the metal community can't tag this holier than there, we're better than you attitude towards MGK if they're also joining in and laughing at him on Twitter and that, that sort of stuff. Um, I don't think that helps anybody. Um, frankly, it's all a bit, it's all it's all a bit silly. Um, Machine Gun Kelly's music isn't very good and I believe that he's promoting himself in other ways to try and lift that up um, because if you're a Slipknot fan you are not by extension going to be a Machine Gun Kelly fan and if you're a Machine Gun Kelly fan you're not by extension really going to be a Slipknot fan I don't think those two worlds converge so I don't really seem to see the reason why they should be interacting in the slightest really it just comes off as bad form all around for me You mentioned the album there and I, it's terrible. Yeah, it wasn't great. Now, one of the things that I saw people talking about with that record was that, oh, well, even if you don't like this album, look at what it's going to do for pop punk. Look at all the brand new eyes it's going to bring on pop punk. Dude, pop punk's never been in a worse situation, I don't think. Like, pop punk has got nothing. I mean, you, you pop punk, you dislike as a drama anyway, but pop punk has got nothing going on at the moment. No new exciting bands. State Champs are going to release an album, I think, either at the end of this year or at the start of next year. I've got no doubt for me that'll be great because I, I love pop punk and I love State Champs. But outside of State Champs, the story so far, neck deep, there's and maybe four years strong and perhaps someone else that I'm missing out. What's happening? Nothing's happening in pop punk. That, that genre is dying. No new exciting bands. It's not being spoken about in the zeitgeist at all. The, the genre it's, is falling apart. Machine Gun Kelly's album did absolutely nothing for pop punk. It's it's a ridiculous argument to have begun with because you're looking at a genre that has never attracted rap music fans and then saying, look, wait, all these rap music fans start getting into pop punk because of this one person. It's like having like a popping a wheel while driving a car and being like, why do we use that melon to fix the to fix the broken wheel? Yeah, yeah. What, what are you talking about? It's not even going to do anything. How it, If you're into... Drake and Kendrick Lamar and whatever. At what point are you being like, story so far, cool. There's no line of delineation. There's certainly not one that MGK is going to build. It, it was it was always a flawed argument to prop up somebody's already pre-agreed support for somebody. That's all it is. This is, this just is what it is in terms of pop punk and MGK and, and, and this whole scenario. That melon is actually a great metaphor for MGK, I've got to say. Um, just to close off here, you mentioned that you don't See, think... some colourful. You, you don't think that anyone has won here, but I do think that MGK has lost. There's no winners, but there is a loser. And I think that by some distance, MGK is coming off as the, the least fortunate of this group and this really, really stupid scenario here. If you're if you're a metal if you're a metal festival of which you are presumably playing a lower a lower part of the build than Slipknot, please don't throw shade at one of the headlining acts. I mean, who, who, who are you who are you going for? You think there's gonna be more Slipknot fans there than MGK fans? Do you, do you think if all the Slipknot fans come to fight with MGK fans, how would that work out for you? Yeah, terrible. Like, it, it's just it's not gonna it's not gonna go well. Um, so I don't know what. As I was, I don't know what he was thinking. He's, he's a biased accusation. 
how dare I assume that he had any thought going into this to begin with? Brilliant. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's not giving him enough credit there. Let's move on to something that's actually like fun to talk about. Dying Wish, Fragments of a Bitter Memory. It is out on October 1st via Sharp Town Record. It's the band's debut full-length album. Dude, I, I have been aware of vocalist Emma Bostat since she guested on Knock Loose's Enemies in Red. And I was immediately taken aback by how visceral and straight-up incredible her voice was. And I want to say, a year later, they were signed to Sharptone and they released Innate Thirst as a single. And I was immediately like in and really looking forward to this moment. I think actually I showed you Innate Thirst at one of our pre-drink sessions. I was like, dude, you got to listen to this <laughs> this song. I mean, the, the breakdown is going to blow you away. And just as a little precursor here, I think breakdown is going to be our word of the day here, speaking about both Dying Wish and Wage War later on, in the same sense as rhythm was our word of the day when we were talking about uh, turnstile a couple of weeks ago. And groove. And groove, yeah. Dude, I'm head over heels for this record. I feel like it's a legitimate throwback to classic metalcore with all the modern savagery of scarring breakdowns, blast beats, and these vocal calls from Emma that at times are borderline hard to believe. My immediate thoughts is that this is the hardcore record of the year without doubt. Though there's probably a record that I've missed somewhere along the way. You know, I haven't heard every single hardcore album that's come out in 2021, but I just can't see how anything would be able to rival the intensity, fight riffs, political fury, and let's just call it what it is. Let's bullet point it straight up anger that this record forces across pretty much every single second. When was the last time you heard something this angry, dude? Um. Well, ang- 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 anger I've heard a, f- a, f- a few times, but this is, um, I'm with you on the, the sense that it's a real throwback to a classic metalcore album. I haven't heard, I haven't heard an album that, that is so successful in the metalcore tropes really for some, um, for some time. This is like a real late 2000s kind of vibe. I'm hearing on this uh, in the best way. Um, I think this is a terrific album. Terrific album. Um, there's so much to love and enjoy on this record here. Um, was starting off with um with coward's feed coward's bleed awesome that's just a it's just a fantastically groovy breakdown just a what i like as well uh, this band this happens a lot over the course of the um course of the record um is so often me and you are able to sort of like pinpoint when the breakdowns come in you can kind of hear when it's building or two mm. i like the dome wish you're like yeah we're gonna start with one <laughs> and we're just gonna yeah. get that out of the way we're gonna do that a few times um and this this album is just immediately reminiscent of that. I was immediately thrown to like, um, like pre murder trial as I lay dying. This is the best way I could delineate that early period before everything started to kick off. Um, just incredible symbol work as well on that opening tune going into those one hundred sixteens on the ride. Just an incredible start, um, and then straight into hallowed by affliction. Those pinch harmonics, yeah. incredible traditional metalcore follow up. There's a really nice mix here. There's a lovely bass sound. It's really full. Incredible riff in the bridge. Uh, the return of triplets in breakdowns. The diggadun, diggadun. I've missed those. I haven't heard those for a while. Give me some of that. It's fantastic. It does feel like a fantastic throwback here. And um, what I like as well, there's just some beautiful secondary riffs in the breakdowns here. That they, they, they come into breakdowns. They come out of them. The transitions are really, really nice. Um, 
the end of um, Hallowed by Affliction, there's like a Discord type riff that reminded me of early Cold Orange, um, where they were like mixing up the high pitch sort of discorded riffs with this sort of real low element, and that was jarring. I thought that was really really good. Starting with a breakdown in eight first, there's just so much, so much to really enjoy here. This is a top five metal album of the year for me, without doubt, um, because there's real depth. Alongside the uh, the punching, the the breakdowns, the the intensity that is just really just littered throughout. There are some real moments of depth here as well, um, like off uh, fragments of a bit of memory. The title track, there's a switch up into a fast paced groove. And there's like echoey, transcendent element to it. There's a beautiful fade out at the end. There, I think um, the beautiful melody in "Until Morning Comes" is a real highlight as well. It's an enjoyable sign of depth. Um, and they, they go in again with Drown in the Silent Black, Black, which has just like a really nice, beautiful conclusion at the end as well. And then this is all in the midst of some of the some of the best hardest metal I've heard for a while, and some of the best vocal performances and vocal guest work I've heard for a while as well. This is really, really good. Um, there's a there's a there's a blueprint and there's a a clearly followed strategy in terms of the songwriting but none of it takes away from the overall impact and makes it any less enjoyable. Um, it's just, it's just fantastic. It doesn't stay. It's welcome. It's 10 to 12 songs of just really, really, really great metal. Uh, and this is, this is very, very, very impressive. Just a correction for something I said earlier. Enemies in red is the track on this album that Brian Garris from not, from not loose, but, yeah. um, adds his vocals to Emma Boster added her vocals to a serpent's touch on a different shade of blue. Just got that uh, mixed up there, so I apologise for that. But since I've mentioned Enemies in Red, mate, Brian Garris is so perfect for that track. I don't think it necessarily needed him to be a good song, but he takes that from a good track to one of the standouts for me. But the rasp on his vocal bark is just unmatched. Brian Garris is just an incredible, incredible cog in the wheel of hardcore. He's so vital to this fresh new movement that hardcore and metalcore are, are, is, is a kind of experiencing at the moment. Sorry, you, you were going to say something. No, I was going to say it was an interesting spot to put him in as well because it was not your typical way you'd put him for a breakdown or something. Mm. It was like in the middle of this sort of like kind of chorusy type section, kind of mid-light feel that wasn't really breakdown on its own, but he really, like you said, he sort of, he took that into a different gear, man. It was, it was, it was really fantastic. Ninth Thirst is a track that's been out for a while, but it's kind of, I can't not talk about it. Like most people that are listening to this review, if you're into Dying Wish, you would have heard Ninth Thirst several times. Even though the 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 Ninth Thirst that's on this record is of a slightly different mix to the Ninth Thirst that was released purely as a single a year ago. Regardless, my favourite breakdown of the year is on that song. The, the little run that goes, I'll seal this message with my blood and a bullet. Yeah, it's fantastic. When it all comes together, it's so, so stunning. And there's an unbelievable little bass running it before the final riff comes back in, which I, which I think is so awesome. Every time I hear that breakdown, it, I feel like it just goes harder. And I... And th- Agreed. That's... That's something that this record does really well. The the pace very, very rarely lets up. Like severing the senses comes in just after a night thirst and it picks up exactly where a night thirst let, lets off. It, like lyrically, this album is so harshly delivered. Emma's kind of torment 
as she goes through these really dark grazing lyrics. I think one on severing the senses even mentions the word torment goes, I cannot escape this torment granted by the hand of a coward. It's direct. It picks at the skin. It really matters. And the depth to Emma's voice is something that I have to kind of discuss here. Saw that she put a tweet out a couple of days ago saying, I know you're moaning about me singing a bit on the new record. I thought it'd be good. There's no reason for anyone to complain about Emma's melodic vocals on this record because they're great. They're really good and they're fit and they don't feel like they were chucked in last minute because, oh, should we add some melody? They legitimately fit. She's a fantastic, fantastic vocalist that has a, a very fascinating range, the kind of range that can make you excited about where Dying Wish are going to go. Do I always think Dying Wish are going to be a hardcore band? Not quite to this extent, because they don't need to be. I think that there'll always be elements of hardcore to Dying Wish in the same sense of there's there's always going to be metalcore elements to architects, but architects aren't limited to metalcore with Sam and Dying Wish aren't limited to hardcore with Emma because Emma's got this fantastic, fantastic range Speaking of which, did you find any kind of issue with the range of vocals that Emma used on this album? I found zero. I thought it was all brilliant. No, I had no issue with it whatsoever. In fact, I was glad it was there um, because I can't, I can't deal with just twelve songs that sound exactly the same. Yeah, um, you, you need to have a, you need to have a bit of depth. You need to have a bit of expansion, and it was also, it was also that was really nice balance. Where you had circumstances where the, the vocal melodies really sort of transcended the song and the, the riffs changed. It wasn't like like you said, it's not like they're being shoehorned into something that makes it sound sort of weird or juxtaposed or anything like that. It was really sort of fit in and it was perfectly applicable to what she actually was trying to do. Um I think I think when it when it's really good, it's really, really, really good here. And like I want to talk about it until the morning comes, because Brilliant. number one, what an what an introduction. Or a song, yeah. Uh, uh, if you're a metal, if you're a metal fan, you're a hardcore fan. Okay, you get the the breakdown to opening, which is tremendous. The tempo mate, a, is amazing. Yeah, flicks into a thrashy metalcore section, which is fantastic. And then you get the and then you get this beautiful melody at the end that really carries the carries the conclusion of the song. Now, if I just got the first two bits for two or three minutes, it's a seven out of ten. You know what I mean? Because I've heard the thrashy metalcore stuff before. I've heard breakdowns to open. I've even heard that type of breakdown quite often. But when you combine the whole package with this additional bit of melody. That gives it that depth, that additional texture that for me stands out. And there's, we talk about this all the time, but there's no coincidence why after two or three albums, bands naturally start earing towards melody. Because once you've done two or three albums of just hard and heavy, you know, you've kind of explored enough. Mm. You know, you've reached the corners of that world. You've looked in every nook and crevice. How many conceivable breakdowns can you do without anything to come out of? You need... You know, you need you need the contrast. You need light to make the dark look darker. You need darkness to make the light look brighter, and that's how it should be. And I think that this is this is a fine example of that. Like you said, it's not like she's bad. I mean, like she can sing, and she can sing well, yeah. yeah. And she can also sing in a way that doesn't detract from the overall song at all. And it actually fits in quite nicely. She's got quite a nice voice. It's quite like a like quite a sad sort of melancholic tone to her voice. So I think actually gives it real depth because she's not talking about, you know, things of great positivity in her lyrics or anything like that. And I think it gives it a bit of depth. And I actually think a lot of bands that we've reviewed this year that just 
uh, on one side of the train tracks in terms of songwriting could have really benefited to stepping over to the other side. And I, I, I admire their bravery. You talk about depth. I mean, there's parts of this record that I was like, oh, I'm picking up some Svalbard here. I got that on Now Your Rot mm. and Until Morning Comes. And there's, I think it's, I think it's on severing the sense, senses, actually. That's where you first get the kind of idea of the, the dynamic that Emma is going to bring with the new vocals, with this like kind of vocal chorus that doesn't take anything away from the track. And on Fragments of a Bit of Memory, you were talking about it. There's a moment where the atmospheric clean guitar like flickers on the chorus. And it's brilliant because eventually Emma then starts matching the guitar tone with her dual layered clean vocal. And it sounds like a, a, an adjective you wouldn't expect to hear talking about this album, considering how we described it so far. It sounds pretty beautiful. When, when Emma is matching that clean guitar, guitar line, on the chorus of Fragments of a Bit of Memory, it really is pretty beautiful. Looks like very Svalbard-esque. I loved Blood Lace Misery. My favourite riff on the album opens that track. This harsh, coursing two-step rhythm to it. The dual vocal, again, on the chorus is a great touch. The drum fill into the middle breakdown is just like an adrenaline junkie's wet dream. That chorus vocal of Land of the Free, ripped from underneath, Cries of Sorrow Forsaken. What a brilliant lyric that is. There's so there's so much charge to this album, whether it's political charge, whether it's social charge, whether it's violent charge. Everything about this album is pumped, turned up to 11. It's this intensity-ridden 28-30 minute blast and drowning in silent black. What a fitting note for the album to end on. Because considering the verse is just as in your face as everything else on the record. But I think it might actually hold the best chorus on the entire album. And anyone that has an issue with Emma's singing voice on on this record is just being difficult on purpose, I'm certain. Because that the chorus on Draining the Silent Black, if you listen to that and you and you think that Emma's vocals in terms of not being the wretched screams are a problem. I'm certain that you're just being difficult on purpose for the sake of being difficult and trying to make yourself look like a kind of edgelord or something, because I just, I just don't see how you could view it as a problem. It could be your least favorite thing that she does, but a problem. Absolutely not. I think that this record is something that me and you will look back at sound in the same vein that we look back on Alpha Wolf's A Quiet Place to Die. Maybe not to say that you would prefer this or think this is as good as, but in the way that we listened to A Quiet Place to Die and we tapped everyone that we knew on the shoulder that liked hardcore and was like, have you heard this album? One of them being our best friend, Leon. We're going to go to him on October 1st and this is out and being like, Chuck Dying Wish on in your car. You're going to love it. It's going to be your thing. You're going to want to listen to every song. It's going to be your go-to album in the gym. I think that's what this record is going to be. Me and you will go around and tap everyone on the shoulder. We now listen to hardcore and be like, have you heard this? You should hear this. If you like hardcore, this will be your favourite album of the year. I think this is a fantastic, savage, brilliant, heart-stomping kick to the face of just blasting anger. It's an amazing record. So in love. This album will beat the shit out of you. You'll love it. Chris Pugh. Yep. Nothing but can't bruises, I, cuts and I, broken bones after listening to this. Amazing. <laughs> love it. I'm in. 
Before my interview with Jim Hodge of Mastiff comes in, Sam, let us finish with Wage Wars Manic. It is out on October 1st via Fearless Records. It's the band's fourth album and the follow-up to 2019's Pressure. We have mentioned this a few times on the podcast before, Sam, but let's just do it again just in case this is someone's first ever time of listening to us. I want to say four years ago, me and you, big Wage War fans, thought that they, I believe the record was called Deadweight. They released in 2017, me and you, well in. I was well in previously because Blueprints is a great, great metalcore, a great, great modern metalcore record at least. Then we saw them support While She Sleeps and we left and were like, they're going to be massive. That was the first time that we'd seen them and we were really convinced because regardless of what you think of Wage War's musical progression, they're one of the best bands I've seen live in terms of recreation of their sound. They sound fantastic live. They're fantastic live. And then, Sam, they released Pressure in 2019. And the tempo did seem to be very, very much halted. Not removed from the train tracks completely, but very, very much halted. Now, I think band evolution is always important. And we discuss on this podcast at great lengths how important that evolution is. But equally, Sam, and I think this gets lost in the conversation sometimes, I think the timing of the attempt at evolution is just as important as the evolution itself. Would you agree? I think that's a fair comment. So just for me to go a little bit further on that. If we look at Parkway Drive, Architects and Bring Me the Horizon for a moment, because those are the three bands that evolved out of, let's call it metalcore, and became something bigger and it didn't lose anything. It was just a different form of them, but equally as great as what we've heard before in some areas, not all, but in some areas. So let's look at Parkway Drive. They timed their evolution perfectly. It was clear after listening to Atlas that they had taken their form of metalcore as far as they could. I think the same could be said for Bring Me the Horizon when they did There Is a Hell. I know that Sam Paternal, some people would call that a metalcore record. I personally think that's a metal record. And architects with holy hell, we've discussed this. We've discussed holy hell before. There was nowhere further for them to go. I genuinely believe that. I believe that is the closest metalcore will get to a perfect album, and has done real great things for their career. But in Wage Wars' case, Sam, I feel like they tried to evolve too soon with pressure because that's not a bad album. It's actually quite solid. But I feel that Wage War had another blueprint in them. There was still more for them to give that blueprint that they had previously laid down for themselves in retrospect, would you agree? Yeah, I can understand that. I can understand that line of thinking. I think, I do think they moved a little bit early. They probably could have perfected what they were doing um, because I don't think what they were doing was already big enough for them yet. was mm. garner enough attention and that type of thing. They did really need another album that would have put them higher up the metal flagpole before they could start to divert away from it really now the architects comparison that i made wasn't just apt because architects are a band that have evolved away from metalcore but it was also apt i feel because architects released a record called the here and now and if you're listening to this and you're like the here and now i didn't even know that existed it's because architects treat it like it didn't exist Architects tried to evolve. I believe the here and now came out in 2012. Architects tried to evolve too soon. It's a bad album. It's the only Architects album I can categorically say is bad. 
it's not good. They know it's not good. I don't think they've played a song from the album in like eight years, maybe even nine, maybe, yeah, maybe like eight years since they've played a song from the album live. They treat it like it never happened. They tried to evolve too quickly. It didn't work. It's a bad album. Now, Architects, obviously, as we know, won it back and then some with the career they've gone on to have. But it's just an example that a return to form in consistent measures can do you some big favours. Now, what I'm going to ask you now, Sam, I'm fairly confident you're going to say this is a return to form. But... I feel like we could be looking back at this as a really important record for Wage War. Do you feel that this record is as important as it is much a return to form? I think it's I think it's a more important album for Wage War than it is a return to form. I think it's a very I think it is a return to form, I think, but not all the way. Um, but I do think it's incredibly important that they made this step. And even if it was this successful as I think it is or less. I still think it's incredibly important for them to have done it, um, considering how pressure was received. Here's another one for you. Do you wish this came out in 2019 and maybe pressure came out this year? I don't think that would have made me think better of pressure, but I understand I, I would have preferred the album to come out beforehand. Do you see what I'm so getting at with sense. that question now? Yeah, I do. I do. Uh, I, that would have made more sense as a delineation from one to another. One to another. Um, but I don't think that makes pressure and necessarily a better album no it doesn't um, or, do you know what I mean so I, I think this is an album that actually makes a bit more sense as a follow up uh, from the 2017 record which which is good and this is good it is good this is in fact this is pretty great Sam this furthers Wage War's ability to write a sick hook and break down within the confines of modern metalcore and this record has made me think that possibly it's not too late for them to eventually fulfil the potential that they seemed full of in 2015, 2017. I'm not saying it's definitely going to happen, but I feel like the odds are more likely now than they were or at least seemed two years ago. You said you think this album is good. Is that where you would stick your flag or would you go any further? it's good with um two or three great songs on it yeah um, but no i wouldn't i wouldn't go farther than that i think wage will have correctly looked to looked at themselves and realized that their peers should be counterparts and the ghost inside rather than a day to remember i just i just i, th- I think that's that's where they've correctly realized that their strengths lie ironically after me saying that I think this is a good album that is in parts actually great, I do feel like the worst song Wage War have ever written is on this album. Which one do you think I'm going to go for? Is it The Last Goodbye, Chris? Never it's Said n- Goodbye. It's not Never Said Goodbye. It's the title track. I think it's the worst song they've ever written. I find the kind you know, of hip-hop I was, I was, I was bass thinking, loose so jarring. I was, I was thinking of that. Um, but I also thought it was strange. Um, the verse was so odd, oh. but it was actually rescued a little bit by the by the heavier chorus that came after. The heavy chorus that, that is, is awesome. You are right, but I, I'm so put off by the verse. I can't be won back over. What is happening on that verse? Who? Hey, you know what? Yeah. Take Who's these chances. Take these chances. You know, I respect that. 
this that doesn't work and i can't believe no one turned up and was like listen man let's not do this this isn't working (laughs) i don't think i just can't and it's the title track of the album as well i just can't see i can't see that song winning people because it's the title track of the album i can't help escape the feeling sam that they're going to play that live often and i just the yes, the riff that comes back in eventually does go hard, and the breakdown's cool. Who's that for? But those, those verses, what is happening? What's happening Who on those? That? Who is that for? I I, don't, I, I agree with you. The, the verse is just nonsensical. <laughs> it's ridiculous. I, I can't I, believe that. I, I, I couldn't. I, I kind of respect it. I guess as a as a differentiation away from what they were doing, because like I said, there are some great songs on here. I think relapse is really good. Yeah. I think I think High Horse is really good. Yeah, I think Circle of the Drain is perfectly yeah, okay, and I want to just a separate few minutes to talk about Death Roll later on its own. Yes, let's do it. Um, um, but there's a bit of Beartooth new record here because, mm, unfortunately, like Godspeed, Slowburn, Never Said Goodbye, and True Colors are all much of a muchness. Um, they all follow an identical structure um, it, it, to the point where the, even the choruses are really in the same the same key. You know, it's almost the same the same melody. And if I wasn't paying such close attention for the review, it, it, it does get a bit dicey trying to differentiate between some of the songs sometimes. So I will I will say that. I also I also think that obviously there are some there's some risks that I take that, that, that doesn't necessarily work out, but there is enough here that's incredibly, incredibly positive. And if they're playing three or four tunes off this. Uh, when they play live and it gets you back. Because if you're a Wage War song, a Wage War fan, um, Relapse, High Horse and Death Roll are three of the better songs they've released in the last four, four or five years. And if you like their contemporaries, like Ghost Inside and things like that, this is of that of that ilk. It's certainly better than anything that Beartooth have brought out yeah. and the Data Member have brought out in the last five years. In fact, if you combine the best elements of the Data Members' last album and Beartooth's last album, this is still better than that. Although that's probably more of a criticism of those two bands than it is a praise of Wage War in itself. But that that's that's a separate no, it is it is better than what it's a better version of what we've heard other bands try to be. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's more successful in meeting that sort of requirement. Um and uh, bring bring it in. Death Roll, that might be the best Wage War song they've ever written. It's definitely in contention. I think it's the hardest song it's, it's, if, it's, if it's not, then it's top three. Um, Where do you begin? It's just, well, I'll begin with the fact that I thought it was after the burial for about 30 <laughs> seconds at the start. And, and, all, and pinch and also, harmonics, mate. I did not see a pinch harmonic turning up in this album. If you'd have told me there was pinch harmonics in this album before we received it, I'd have thought you were lying. I thought you were giving miles off. <laughs> Telling porkies, yeah. Um, and and the final bit, um, the breakdown was just utterly brilliant. And the guitar yeah. solo, every every minute, I was like, they're doing this as well. I was like, no, you don't know, you don't, you know, you don't get a solo from Seth Blake too often. And the small one he slips in is an absolute beauty on Death Roll. It's one of my favorite songs I've ever yeah, done. It is incredible that song is, and the cold hearted till my last breath, bright um, vocal mosh call as well by Britain. Bond is superb. So good. Death Roll is amazing. Mr. Bond must be personally pretty glad 
because we were we were talking to each other. Remember, when I said this on press, if we were actually joking about it or not, how he must have felt in the studio, being like, yeah. "So when am I? When's my bit?" Yeah, it soon. It's, yeah. it's going to be the next verse in it. Yeah. Oh no, it must be the one after. Did he even need to turn up on pressure? Like, really, that could have just... He just stood there. Do you know what I mean? Like, Apart from on low. Just, Apart from on low, he did a lot of standing. Yeah. He just, he just gets a cup of tea, doesn't he, while um, the vocalist sings his 15th chorus. Um, but on, on this, he's well used, and it shows that they need that balance. You can't just pick. And this might be like... <laughs> So there's one of those circumstances, right, where you watch... Uh, I'm going to make a sports analogy again for, for no one in particular. I'm going to do it regardless. There's some circumstances where, like, a, a team will perform badly over the course of the season, right? And then they'll release this little, like, PR thing. Marcus Rashford was dealing with an injury on and off for two and a half months. And it's like, oh, he was dealing with an injury and we kind of excuse him for how bad it was. Um, and it's like, it doesn't really matter. Like, you know, if Ronaldo goes 10 games without scoring Manchester United's press office will tell someone they actually had an ankle strain that he was fighting yeah. through. Um, we might find out that in 2019, Britain Bond was going through like a nasty divorce or like he was moving house, or, like his cat died or something. And then we go like, oh, that's why. Like, and, and then we're all going to move on and pretend that it didn't. Um, that's what I feel like is coming for this sort of uh, wage war period because now they've got him back, they just feel like a complete band again. And I think that's really, really good for them. I also think this opens them back up as a genuinely intense live performer. Once again, having that balance, I think is really, really good. Um, I'm going to ask you a question. How much of your enjoyment of this record is because of pleasant surprise and your expectations were lowered? That's a good question. Thanks. <laughs> okay, that is good. I want to say 30% of my enjoyment is based around pleasant surprise. And I say that because if we just look at what wage war have in Britain Bond and Cody Cristad, those are two great vocalists of what they do. I think Cody Mm -hmm. Cristad is superb. He has got a fantastic voice. And I do understand why sometimes, especially on pressure, Wage War kind of felt the need to make him front and centre as much as possible. How can you resist? Listen, you know, the ability that he's got on some of these vocal hooks that he lays down, it must be very, very, very difficult to resist that. What I would say is Cody isn't overused in terms of huge choruses on this album up to like Circle the Drain. Once Circle the Drain comes in, after that point, Cody becomes much more of a, of a figure vocally in the record. And you felt that Godspeed and Never Say Goodbye and True Colours were much of a muchness. But I do feel like on Godspeed, you know, you kind of start to understand Cody's real worth because that song is just fine. But because of his stunning ability to throw in a sumptuous hook in the mix out of nowhere. He really drags that song from fine to good purely because of him. Because other than, other than him, other than his section, that song it's is just, throwaway. it's just decent. Like it's just a, it's just an album track, some riffs they had lying around with some vocals that they thought of quickly just to add in, just to make, just to make the, the album three and a half minutes longer. But he actually makes the song good. Death Roll we've spoken about. That's one of my favourite Wage War songs I've ever done. It's probably, it's, it's, I think it's the hardest song they've ever written. It is an absolute barnstormer. But when it gets to like 
the real larger aspects of the record. I think we're looking here, Sam, at a band that if they time it right, they could be something bigger. You know, when we got the liner notes for the album, I saw hard rock band wage war and immediately I was worried. I was, I thought, ah, they're calling them a hard rock band, even in the liner notes. And I don't think they're ready. I don't think they were ready to be a hard rock band on pressure. They needed another metalcore album. And I think that this, this is interesting. Do would you take this over Blueprints from twenty? Uh, no, not Blueprints. Uh, Dead Weight in twenty seventeen because Blueprints is Wage War's best album. I think that we both agree on that. I'm not sure how much you remember of Dead Weight, but would you take this over Dead Weight? I'm assuming you'd automatically take it over Pressure. But uh, how about Dead Weight? Um, Dead Weight's the one that got Stitch on. In case you forgot. Yeah, I think I'd take Dead Weight. Is it close? It's a little bit harder, a little bit rawer. Close, relative. Yeah, it's relatively, it's relatively close. I think that was maybe, but from my memory, I haven't listened to it for a while. From 10, 15 percent better. It is close. It is close. This isn't a bad album at all. In fact, it's very good in parts. In parts, it is very good. I love relapse. Huge chorus. I'm good not massive. Great opener. I'm not massive on the whispered vocal intro of teeth, but the riff undeniably goes hard. Structurally, the song is fine. Again, Cody's chorus lifts it, off a, lifts it up a few notches. Manic, I believe, is the worst song they've written. I, I don't understand that at all. How no one tapped them on the shoulder and said, fair play for giving this a go, but it's not working, so let's just, re- let's just do something else here. And I think that Seth Blake, the lead guitarist, has some amazing moments on this album. He comes out with a sliding riff on High Horse that breaks out of the chorus, which is an absolute stunner. And there are even the album tracks here that don't do much, at least do something. And I think that's where Pressure really lost, really got kind of lost points because there's some great songs on Pressure. Me Against Myself is a great song. Low is a great song. But there are moments on the album which which feel like nothing, and but at, at least on every song here, there is something to dig your teeth into. And I I also liked how the album finished on "If Tomorrow Never Comes" and not "Never Said Goodbye," because listening to those songs, you think, oh, they'll finish on the like the acoustic like sing along. But actually, "If Tomorrow Never Comes." You, know, you get hit with another metalcore banger. It goes hard. It's got an awesome breakdown in the second verse that lead that um, Britain Bond leads the mosh call for. <laughs> this kind of climactic end where Cody's vocals are over the top of Britain's with these huge synth outros. It's really a fantastic end. If tomorrow never comes, it's it's interesting to hear why you all manipulate the sound in that way. Not something that I've really heard them do much of before. And I think that. You said to me how much of this album was a was surprise. That 30%, yes. But I feel like now we're back in a position where Wage War can... They don't have to be a band that we're happy to just see existing and just doing decent records. I think now, with this, any fans that were previously turned off purely because of pressure, I feel like they may get hooked back on by this album and they can just consider pressure a fine like jerking the road moment that they've moved past i think this puts a wage wars momentum back on the train back on the train track sir yeah i completely agree mate 
I completely agree. I think it can be um, a really good moment for them. And I think it's one of those that maybe the next album you know, could be really, really good uh, if they if they settle on an area that they're comfortable with. Um, and I think they've 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 refound the blueprint that could be successful for them because there were some really great, really great moments on this, and clearly there's been a bit of self reflection in terms of the songwriting process. And I think that's going to pay them dividends down the road. That is where we are going to leave off episode 81 of the Noise Podcast just before my interview with Jim Hodge of Mastiff comes in. Thank you so much for listening. We are going to be back in maybe, let's have a look here, let me just set the dates. I'm expecting slash hoping the Trivium new record will turn up for us. So depending on that, if we get the new Trivium record early, we will be back next week. If not, we will be back on the usual fortnight schedule. Regardless, um, give us a subscription, a like or follow, depending on whichever service you are using. Follow us at Noise Podcast. Me and Sam both run that Twitter account. For now, my interview with Jim Hodge from Mastiff comes up right now. Don't go anywhere. Me and Sam are going to be back in hopefully uh, a week's time, depending on when we get Trivium album. If not, we'll be back in two weeks as usual. Love you very much. Thank you for listening to the show. We'll see you soon. Bye. So now joined by Jim Hodge, vocalist in Mastiff. Mate, on a Sunday evening, thank you for your time, man. How are you? I'm all right. No problem. No problem at all, bud. Mate, you've just told me you're off to see Black Tongue, which is awesome because I'm seeing Black Tongue next Sunday. So I am not going to keep you around uh, waiting, mate. We're going to get right into the interview here. Um, oh, yeah, no problem. I think great art makes you feel something right. And in regards to Mastiff, do you think it's not easy, but maybe easier for you to get an emotional result out of uh, your fan base or listeners because you're retelling personal experiences? Um, nine times out of ten it is um, um, but you know it, it's it's up to the individual to get to, to show a response in whichever way so, um, so there is a lot of personal stuff with me in, in the music or in my lyrics but um, because it's so personal I don't you know I just I'm doing it as a cathartic thing so if, if somebody else finds something it's great is it when you're writing for yourself, is that do, when you get in that headspace of writing, and it's and it's purely from for your own perspective, does that help you in terms of getting out of the things that might bother you in your past to hit those kind of to hit those past experiences head on and put them on paper? Um. Yeah, I don't know. I've never thought of that, but yeah, I suppose. Um, Yes, it does. Um, I just write what's in my... Do you know what I mean? I, I don't intentionally set out to write stuff about certain things. Right. I just got... There is a lot of stuff in, you know, in past experiences, life, whatever, um, that, you know, lend itself to... Or, or not lend itself to writing, um, lends itself to getting it out. I mean, it's just... It's very... Yeah, I don't know. I've never really thought of that. <laughs> it just, it, it's not, yeah, I just write what's in my head. I don't, yeah. like I said, I don't intentionally set out to go, right, this song's going to be about it. Just because the way we write, there's, you know, we all sit in a room and they write the music and then I'll sort of come up with ideas or noises and, you know, like 
people, whatever, they, they make noises over the top of it and then yeah. they get the lyrics, which is how that happens, really. But um, I do, yeah, the, the, there is certain ways of doing it, I suppose. And yeah, I will, it, I don't know, I'm, I'm waffling a bit, but yeah. I suppose <laughs> no, no, I'm getting you. <laughs> but then um, I suppose that's the way all lyrics are written, I guess. Nobody mm. knows where they're going. Oh, I don't think people write it that way. I certainly don't, so. From the outside looking in, because we're basically, we are literally at completely different ends of the country, me and you. Um, Hull seems to be like described in a similar way to like where I live in Wolverhampton. Like there's potential in the city, but we're kind of just like forgotten about and ignored. And the powers that be kind of just hope we just get on with it. Um, and if, if that is the case for Hull, do you think that really there's no more ideal place for Mastiff to be birthed from, considering the darkness of Mastiff's music? Really, is there anywhere better that you could have come from than Hull? Um, you know, we, we do say we're a miserable van from a miserable city. Um, and it does, I don't know, I think I've said it in another interview a few weeks ago that wherever you're from, there is, and you've just said like Wolverhampton, you, you just, you live in, uh, I don't want to say dump, but you live in wherever you live and there's always, there's, you know, generally musicians are, you know, living in very expensive houses and yeah. we're all coming from sort of a shit tip and you want to just sort of empty ourselves on whatever, get get things out of our chests and whatever. So I, I presume, I think wherever we'd have been from, you know, I, I don't think that the city, it wasn't really why would the sound we are we're just mm. the sound we are because we're pissed off individual and wherever we'd been from i think would have made this row so i mean in terms of like the city situation in hooks i've i've never been i've never been up like the north really further than manchester um but for the for the north is it like Wolverhampton, like I've said, like kind of just like forgotten about and uh, like not very well funded and hoping everyone just kind of gets on with it. Is that an accurate definitely. portrayal? Yes, definitely. I mean, we had the City of Culture, what, uh, four years ago now? So um, it it got a lot of funding then. Mm. And, and yeah, you know, everywhere gets funding would there they are sort of doing hull up at the moment i suppose right, okay. they're putting a lot of money into an area of the city trying to bring it up but um i don't know the the, the bits that are, are probably the worst broken parts of the city do get ignored by local governments whatever mm. and they, they are expected to just get on with it i think so yeah yeah i think yeah, we just we are a, an ignored part or an ignored part of the world of it as on, you know, as as big as a big picture goes, I guess. That like like so for Wolverhampton, like I said, there are parts of Wolverhampton that are well funded, and just like there there are parts of every city that are well funded. Yeah. But for the for the areas that are ignored, that snowball just is just going to keep rolling down the hill, isn't it? And oh just, yeah, I, I just. I, the, there's one particular area of Wolverhampton which is a really, really tough area. And it was a tough area when I was like 10 and I'm 28 now. 
Yeah. And like 18 years later, it's still a rough area. They're not doing anything there barely. So I can't help but just like wonder. So like, okay, they're just they're gonna leave this area to just rot all day for the rest of our existence on the on the earth. But the, the, just that snowball's just gonna keep rolling. And it's really annoying, isn't it? I, I find it like a real issue. Like, how are they not trying to make a difference? Do you know? I think the people who live there's a rough area. I hate saying the rough because it's not rough. It's just it's just. I don't know. It's the lesser funded area of the city. And I think, but the people who live there are, are you know, they're bloody honest, well, honest yeah. to God people. And they, yeah. they live their lives as best they can. Um, and they, they just get on with it. And yeah, I suppose, uh, you, you tr- I don't know. As I've said, you go anywhere in the country, and there is bad parts and good parts. So, yeah, I think, yeah. When I first listened uh, to Mastiff, I obviously felt reminded of the likes of Napalm Death, but there's a real, like, dark thickness to your sin that I really feel makes Mastiff stand apart from most. Would you say there has been one particular band or artist that's inspired you the most on the way to crafting your sound, or has it been totally organic? I won't say there's one artist... I mean, nowadays music's so easily available. Yeah. Um, we're, you know, and we're all a little bit longer in the tooth. We've all, we've been brought up with stuff like that, you know, Nepal, Death, what have you. Um, I think it's more of a genre that's brought us up, which is like, you know, your grand car. And, mm. But then, I don't know, not that we was, we've altered our sound particularly, but, you know, the last album was maybe a bit more sludgy. Mm. This one's, this one's definitely a lot more grindy, faster, um, it, you know, your music, your musical influences or styles change, and and that's what's happened with us. So, I think um, we just—I don't think any band influences us so much as we just are in a room and whatever comes out was comes out was and gets recorded. So we don't we don't intentionally set out to style a song or anything. It's just a. It's just oh, well, this this riff goes with that style, and that's that that's probably about it. This analogy I'm about to make is going to sound like nonsense, but just stick with me. Um, I'm a big pro wrestling fan, um, and the best pro wrestlers are always the ones that force you to like suspend your disbelief enough so that you you don't feel like they're playing the character; they are that character. And when it comes to Mastiff, I actually feel similarly. Like I listen to your record, "Leave Me the Ashes," of, the new record, "Leave Me the Ashes of the Earth." And not for one second do I feel like you're playing the part of this misery-stricken band. Like you are, you are this misery-stricken band. Is it exhausting to live in that dark headspace though when you're writing? Because I like you, this person I'm speaking to now. You're really personable and fun to chat to. Whereas the gym, like that, I listen to in Mastiff yeah, yeah, is like is a, is a complete opposite of that, and this this kind of isolated difficult figure and that's the point of mastiff right so but is it like knackering to live in that dark headspace all the time when it comes to the writing process um it's no i don't think it is i think it's quite for me personally it's quite uplifting it's quite emptying it gets a lot of shit off my chest it's it's um so a little, well, a little bit of my history. I lost a, I lost a little boy at five days old, yeah. and that really, you know, it, once you've lived through something like that, mm. you, 
you know, everyone has shit days, but shit days yeah. are just shit days after that. You know what I mean? Yeah, you're like, yeah. oh, well, it's never going to, you're never going to, oh, you'd, you'd hope you'd never, for want of a better word, beat that. Yeah. You'd never have a worse day than that one. Yeah. Yeah. So for me personally, no, it's not, it's not too bad. It's not, it's not, a, it's not hardship to live or write those sort of things that just drop out of me. You know, it just, they just fall out of, and and I think that's why probably people, you know, find it genuine because they are genuine, you know, they are genuine emotions. You're right. Um, but that it's not a, it's not a hardship to live with it once you've been through a proper a proper like breakdown or whatever or mm. you know. Um and and you know, there's a lot of there's people <laughs> a lot I've been through a lot worse than me. Um and but I just yeah, I don't find it that hard to live with it. It's it's and I go back to it again. It's cathartic. It's just it empties all the crap of say that day, you know, whatever, whichever day. Um, so yeah, it's it. Yeah, I am quite a personal person. I am quite a happy person normally. Mm. But yeah, you're right in the in the writing of things. It does it does take its yeah. It is a dark place that I you know sometimes go to. Just kind of following on from that. Massive demands a great deal from you in terms of the headspace that you need to be in. So he's like, is Jim in Mastiff a different person to Jim on Monday morning, kind of thing? Or or is do you see like the Jim in Mastiff is like a kind of expansion or extension of yourself? Jim in Mastiff is a little bit of a I don't know, a, a little bit of a character, I suppose. Right. But not so much. I mean, I don't. Yeah, I think playing this sort of music, you're just what you are, and and it, it, you know, um, I don't know. Yeah, I suppose I used to be a real, used to be a bloody horrible character before, right? Well, <laughs> <laughs> then, Brilliant. you know, I would break shit and smash shit up on stages and just, yeah, to, you know, throw shit about and be an idiot and just. And unlike our guitarist, Phil, who's been in bands with me for probably best part, maybe longer than 10 years now, he's he's seen the worst parts of me and the best parts of me. And he'd be able to tell you that I'm a lot better person to be around now than I was when I was going through, like I said to you earlier about losing the little lad. It was, you know, I, at that point, I was horrible, but it wasn't a character. It was just I was an horrible bastard. So, um, no, I, I, yeah, there's a little bit of a character there when I'm playing live, but no, not really. It's just a genuine person. It's just I go into a headspace of being negative at that point. Or, or you know, whereas with, like, say, Beige Sabbath, that's a bit of a tongue-in-cheek song. So, yeah. you know, there is a little bit of a light side to us now. Um, Plague, the album Plague, you know, the last one before this, was was very dark. It was a very horrible place to yeah. be. Yeah, yeah. Are you, um, that absolutely one, comes across. Yeah, but this one is not light-hearted, but it's not, you know, it's not as miserable. It's not written from such a miserable place as, that, you know, as Plague was. So, Just something um, that I found interesting when you were talking uh, earlier about your on-stage presence, how you used to be someone that would, like, cause, like, quite chaos in terms of damage on stage <clears throat> was that something that you felt was kind of demanded from you because of 
You know, when we think of grindcore, we think of punk. And when we think of punk, we think of like 70s and 80s and the, the and the 60s and the chaos that punk was. Did did the younger you feel like you had to kind of live up to these high expectations of punk grindcore is crazy, so I need to be crazy on stage? Do you know what? I don't think it was crazy. I think it was just, I was just a fucking horrible tosspot. And I used to just, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've pulled bloody i'll get sarah's gear over just i you know got in such a state with myself some points you know how the hell we kept going over some points i'll never know but yeah no i don't think it was i didn't think i, I would felt the need to do it i just did it it was just a bloody idiot thing i mean christ i've been charged hundreds of pounds for I was waiting for that one monitors up and shit like <laughs> yeah. that I mean, we yeah. played sheffield corporation once we're raging speed on and I lost the shit and we was throwing, you know, the monitors about. And you think, when I look back at that, I'm thinking, what the fucking hell was I doing? What sort of a, you know, it's somebody else's hard-end gear, that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I've grown out of it, I suppose. But, yeah, I never did it out of, you know, hey, look at me, I'm smashing shit up. It was just a, it was, you know, just losing myself a bit on stage, probably. I'm fascinated by the short amount of time that you guys spend in the studio when you record. I think if I remember correctly, Plague was only two days that you were in the studio, yeah. um, five days recording Leaving the Ash of the Earth. Do you record in that way because you feel that like Mastiff needs to be captured raw in, in the moment and without the time to kind of scratch out the little imperfections? Definitely, yeah. We like the urgency. We like being under pressure. We work better under pressure. I think... You know, it, to capture the sound that we have, um, that is, you know, it's a it's a, a bit of a, you know, steam pot, pressure pot bloody sort of sound anyway. Uh, and I think if you give yourself too much time with our sort of sound, you polish it and then it's not what we are. Mm. We're not a polished product. We're not the tightest of, you know, yeah, musicians. We're, but again, that goes back to the genuine sound, I think just trying to capture what we actually are live. So, and we've always been a live band, I think. Um, you know, Phil, our guitarist, probably um, would would prefer it if we were doing a bit more recording and less, you know, live shows and stuff. But we are a live band initially. And we, as any band starts out live. So, yeah, we, we just like the sound, you know, we like the agency caught in the music. There's loads of moments on the new record which left me kind of taken aback, but the one I'd love to speak most about is the hiss. That kind of lo-fi production sound, the creeping vocals that sit halfway in the mix, it really is unlike most things I've ever heard. Who Whose idea was it to create the track in that vein? And when you heard the final mix back for that track, was there a sense of like jubilation? that this kind of really weird outlandish idea would actually work so well. Cause I love that opening. I think that opening is like, is brilliant. Um, it, well, you can thank Jam for that. Our other guitarist, he, he had, he's had that in his head since probably plague was written. Ah. Um, we just couldn't capture it. Not that we wanted to capture it prior to this, but trying to throw something together like that in, in the space of a day, when you're recording a full album, it wasn't going to happen. So yeah. when when we said we booked five days, it was like, right, I have had this thing in my head and I think this is the opportunity we want to do. Um, he's had it 
in his head, fully written. He knew exactly what he wanted, exactly the sounds, everything. Um, and then Joe, who Joe Clayton, who you know produced it, um, he threw a few little things in there. But he, you know, there's a there's a thing called the nightmare box, which was this horrible little weird amp um, that did quite a lot of noise on that. But then Dan, our bass player, he's um, a big noise, you know, bands. He likes he likes. Uh, sort of not industrial stuff because it isn't, but he likes you know things like sun and whatever you like that. Oh, okay. So you know it all came together with that. But I like I said, James Jam, our guitarist, he, he had it in his head and he's had it written for probably a year, I would think. So, how do you know when you're ready to write again? Because I, I can't. I ask vocalists this a lot because I'm always really interested in what they say. But like, because you know, in terms of like the lyrics. Do you feel like you need to wait until you've got something new to say before you want to write? Um, mm, mm. No, because I think I have to try and keep up with these uh, the rest of the you know, the band because they are very prolific writers. They're constantly, you know, we've got stuff already written. Right, you know, okay. stuff already. Right, and okay. if I don't, if I don't start thinking about new songs you, you get overwhelmed at one point when we were writing uh Liam and the ashes i think they had three songs finished done and i was like oh hang on a minute i can't you know they'd, they'd sort yeah. of written those three songs within yeah. the space of a month we only practice once a week um and it's like well hang on a minute. i have to catch up with what i am saying um yeah. and, and that goes back to what we said originally you know that i i I let the song write itself and the lyrics come out and, and then you go, all right, this is going towards that idea in my head or that's th that, that theme or whatever. And then that writes itself. So I don't think I'm ever not ready to write. Um, and I think again, that goes back almost to the other part of that where um, the, the, the pressure under pressure, we work better. And I think that's why I have to, you know, you can only write lyrics so much under yeah. pressure. So you get you get a rough idea and then you go, you know. But I, I'm always writing. I've always got stuff, you know. My phone's always out. Anything that I think is catchy or not catchy, but anything that works yeah. lyrically-wise or a sound or whatever, it'll go on my phone. And so I've always, I'm always referring to stuff that I've, you know, every day I'm, I'm writing some shit, you know. 90% of it probably gets binned, but... You, you can't you know if you don't if you don't write down everything it comes to the end of the or oh, ready for the time to, to properly record and you go oh shit i've got no so well it sounds like you can't afford to ever get writer's block right it, like because if the band if the band write as often as we're talking like you've already got stuff written for whatever comes next it sounds yeah. like you can net you can never afford to ever get writer's block which you just said you work better under pressure and that's a lot of pressure <laughs> to constantly be under. But then I think because I'm writing stuff constantly, I don't think, you know, I do get writer's block. But then also, so Leave Me the Ashes, um, there's a couple of tracks on there that like Phil wrote lyrics to or assisted or whatever, you know. So it, it is becoming, it's not quite as pressurizing for me because everybody's got an input on everything. I write, well, I don't write, but we all, because we're in a live environment when we're writing, 
I'll have an input on everything, you know, music-wise, and they'll have an input now on lyrics because it does, you know, at the, at the end of the day, it's it's their band, you know, they, it's their well, how the hell would I put it? It's their band to write lyrics mm. for if they want. If they've got mm. something and they want to get rid of, then you know, by all means, I I'm not that precious where I'm like, oh no, I'm not bloody writing this because we we split. We split, I, you know, if you look at any of the things, it's never so-and-so wrote this bit, so-and-so wrote that bit. It's just Mastiff wrote this. It's That's all it is. It's just five-way split. So we'll never, I don't think we'll ever, you know, go into the uh, <laughs> the Black Sabbath route of, well, I wrote that, so you can ah, only right, have that okay. much money yeah. and blah, blah, blah. You know, I would, I would, I think we prefer to stand by the Huey Lewis sort of idea of it where, um, you know, they, they are, generally share the writing credits yeah. and and you know so I'm waffling again <laughs> you've uh you've got a gig to go to so i'm going to ask this last question i'm going to run through a little bit of a quick fire range with no you worries. and then i'm going to let you go mate um if plague was this record that was written about kind of the destruction of social media and the the, the worst parts of social media is mm-hmm. there a primary message to leave me the ashes because i just as my own interpretation as a fan, as a listener, I feel like Leave Me The Ashes is quite open-ended and quite open to your own interpretation. I'm just curious if there if there is one specific idea that you definitely wanted to get across in that record. No, there isn't. There's not nothing like, I mean, that almost, you know, Plague was almost a concept album. We've said yeah. this. So. Yeah. Um, no, I think this one is a lot more, you know, like I said, Beige Sabbath, it's it's quite a tongue-in-cheek song, I suppose. Yeah, as yeah. far as we go, no, I think it's it's you you take away from this album what you want to take away. Um, um we're not a political band. There's a couple of political songs on there, but nothing that you couldn't then if you want to read it one way, you know, anyone can read a song. And I, I like that, you know, like yourself, you get out of this what you want to get out of. Mm. Because I know what I've put into it and I wrote it and these things that I've written about are personal still. But if you find something in it, then that's brilliant. I love that. I love that people get something out of something I've written about me or about a situation or whatever. So... No, there's you know nothing like plague. There's a few things on it, but no, no running theme particularly. Unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I'm I'm glad because I I as a as a family singer, I couldn't find something that I thought right. A, there's a general idea that I definitely think they're trying to get across, and I thought, am I just dumb listening? To, am I missing something? So I'm kind of glad actually there was no one key theme that you were trying to get. No, across. there's no one key theme on this one. No. Amazing. I've yet to say actually that leaving the ashes, this is a really, really great, amazing record. Um, so you should be proud of yourself for what you've achieved there. And um I am almost uh just sad to (laughs) close off this interview. However, uh, we've come to this part now. So what we do is at the end of every interview that I do, I've got 20 multiple choice questions that I ask you. You have to choose one out of the options. Uh you see how quickly you can answer these. Um they (laughs) range they range from like choose between these two bands and whether you like Coronation Street or EastEnders, that kind of stuff. Um, okay. So when you're ready, mate, uh, I'll start running the clock and ans- asking you the questions. Fire away. Let's go. 
Batman or Superman? Batman. Would you rather be too hot or too cold? Too cold. Coronation Street or EastEnders? Neither. <laughs> Your favourite band? Um, Pearl Jam. <laughs> awesome, awesome, awesome. The best time of the day? Uh, morning, early morning. Your favourite non-musical hobby? Um, oh, fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs> they are hard, they are hard. I make them hard on purpose. Oh, God, I don't know. Looking after my little girl. There you go. Oh, awesome. Metallica or Maiden? Ooh, Metallica. Converge or Poison the Well? Poison the Well. Poison the Well. Uh, your favourite album of all time? God almighty. Um, <laughs> You're doing really well so far, so don't worry about the time. No, I don't know. Uh, um, favourite album of all time is... Oh, Master of Puppets. Awesome, awesome. Um, the hardest Mastiff song to write for you personally? For me personally? Yeah. Oh, God. Uh, Black Death. The best live show you've ever seen? Oh, God. Black Tongue tonight. The best live show you've ever played. Oh, Death Tones. There you go. Death Tones, actually. Awesome. I love that. Uh, what about the best show you've played? Um, oh God. Uh... <laughs> You're still doing well? You're still doing well? Probably any... Oh, Black Heart, London. Awesome. Um, the best band member to be around in the studio? Uh, Phil. Uh, your favourite Mastiff song? Black Death. Uh, your favourite film? Uh, oh God, what did I go to? Uh, Star Wars. Awesome. Uh, you can only save one, Bruce Willis or Tom Cruise? Tom Cruise. Uh, you can only save one, uh, Sylvester Stallone or, or Arnie? Oh, fuck. Um, That's a tough one. Arnie. Arnie, uh, I think. Tea or coffee? Coffee. ACDC or Guns N' Roses? ACDC. And finally, the best advice you could ever give someone? Um, don't be an horrible cunt. That's good. That's good advice. That is the best advice you could ever give someone. Uh, Jim, this has been a real pleasure for me, man. I love leaving the ashes. It's such a great record. Um, this has been so cool. Thank you for your time, man. Uh, enjoy Black Tongue tonight. I can't wait to see them next Sunday. Uh, and I hope uh, that I uh, do end up catching you guys in Manchester at the end of this month. Man. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. Uh, next month, sorry. Thank you so much, Jim. This is awesome. No problem. Thank you ever so much. Cheers, dude. Have a good one. Cheers, dude.